Bahare Khodadust is an Iranian-American artist and mystic. She is also my mother. As members of the Baha'i faith such as herself experienced human rights violations in Iran, Bahare left the country two months after the Islamic Revolution in 1979. During our interview, we reflect on the recent killing of Masa Amini, which sparked a new revolution of men, women, and children, uniting across otherwise deep ideological boundaries to assert their rights in the face of a censorious theocratic government. This latest uprising is being called a revolution for and by the people, bravely led by the chant, Zan Zendaki Azadi, translated as Woman, Life, Freedom. Protesters are risking confrontations with the morality police, incarceration, and torture. Watching as Evan Prison was set on fire, where many Iranian intellectuals, activists, artists, and foreign citizens have been held, and seeing the continual killing of child protesters, Bahari expresses why beauty itself is the Islamic regime's target, why women are cutting their hair in protest, and how the enforced headscarf is just one of many means of control. We reflect on textured stories within our family of martyrdom, imprisonment, and learning to remain dignified and true to one's moral compass. With part one of our conversation, I'm Sienna Mayhe, and this is Leaving the Left for Liberty. برای توی کوچه رخصیدن برای ترسیدن به وقت بوسیدن برای خواهرم خواهرت خواهرامون برای تغییر مغزها که پوسیدن برای شرمندگی برای بیپولی برای حسرت یک زندگی معمولی برای کودک زبالگرد و آرزوهاش برای این اقتصاد دستوری برای این هوای آلوده برای ولی اصر و درختای فرسوده برای پیروز و اعتمال انقرازش برای سکهای بیگناه ممنوعه برای گریه های بیوقفه برای تصویر تکرار این لحظه برای چهره ای که میخنده برای دانش آموزا برای هاینده برای اجباری برای نخبه های زندانی برای کودکان افغانی برای این همه برای غیر تکراری برای این همه شعارهای تو خالی برای آوار خونه های پوشالی برای احساس آرامش برای خرشی پس از شبای طولانی برای غوصای حساب و بیخوابی برای مرد میهنابادی برای دختری که آرزو داشت پسر بود برای زن زندگی آزادی Well, mom, 
um, we've been watching men and women and even teenagers rising up on the streets of Iran in the spirit of their human rights, which have been violated for decades now. And as we know, they are chanting Zen Zendagi Azadi, which means woman, life, freedom. What does this chant and this movement mean for you as an Iranian? I'm going to cry at the beginning, it looks like. Zen Zendagi Azadi, you're half the population. All people, they come through women. How can you discriminate against women in any society? So it means that people of Iran, they're, they're brave. They're either sheer mad and sheer zen, which means lion and lionesses. Under this regime, they never changed people, only people. They made life so difficult that every move they made, it was difficult, but they still educated their children. Three generations have passed. Majority of Iranians are educated. Lots of women are educated, more women than men. But life is difficult. If I have to be afraid, if I send my daughter or my son, go to school, and I don't know if they're gonna come back or not because the stupid moral police can take them to the detention center. is awful, is wrong, and has to stop. Yeah. And this isn't the first uprising. Um, we can talk about why this one seems very different. It is different. Um, but I do remember in 2009, there was footage of women dancing in the streets, defying the morality police. And you, you mentioned their courage then and now. And I, I think that the form of protest of, of dancing really shows the courage and also the creativity of the Iranian people, which um, we know in our own small way in our family, like you love to dance. <laughs> um, Badly, but I do. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, you know, when you see footage like that, and um, unfortunately, much more brutal footage of, of protesting and the government cracking down on them, what do you think, um, like what comes up for you when you see that? And what kind of courage does it take for a woman or a girl to go out and protest? In 2009, I was very proud of the Iranian women. I myself, I went to New York City and I marched and I walked along lots of other people. I was born in a Baha'i family and I'm a Baha'i. As Baha'is, we don't interfere in politics. We are discouraged to interfere in politics. But you know, when it comes to human rights, you can stay quiet. You have to speak up. And every one of us, Iranians and non-Iranians, we have a responsibility to speak up for justice, for equality, for freedom, because we are born free. We are born free. And and these protests, while they're 
getting a lot of attention now. We know that it's been a long time coming, a culmination of, what, 43 years now of the regime's human rights violations, arrests, torture, killing, and our family knows that personally. Um, but looking at the big picture and looking at like the current events of the time, what is it about Masa Amini's death that made people say enough is enough? I think we have said enough is enough from the beginning. When the parents and grandparents of this generation, they were part of that revolution, but many were not. Women, they came to the streets of Tehran a month after revolution took place. We have spoken, but when you're dealing with a brutal government that they poured acid in women's faces, they were brutal. What had kept them in power is their brutality that they have created this, this atmosphere of terror and fear that people, they come forward, eventually, even me as a mother, it's very hard to send your kids to to streets and never come back. So people, they try to compromise and still stay as themselves. We have never stopped dancing. We have never stopped singing. We have never stopped being ourselves. But we have to live kind of a double life. Now, I left my country of Iran when I was your age. <laughs> I left my country of Iran when I was 32 years old. That was the last time I left my country. I have lived most of my life outside of Iran, inside of me. I'm still Iranian. Okay. The love in my heart for my country never goes away. Although as a Baha'i, we believe that the earth is one country, a mankind, a citizen. But there is a love in where you were born, raised, you have memories. I have lots of memories. So last of memories of the country of poets, of music, of beauty, of art, of all kinds, then they try to suppress it. I think the reason they do that because they are so ugly when they see light in the young people, when they see beauty, when they see energy, even in an old woman, even in, a, in an old person, they can't handle it. They have to kill it. It's not just killing a person. You ask about Mahsa Amini. Mahsa was completely innocent. Mahsa was not even in a rally. Mahsa had come from her homeland, had come from Kurdistan to Tehran, Kurdistan, Iran to Tehran to visit some relatives. And you say your, your hijab was not good enough for us because she was beautiful because she she couldn't look ugly like them. That bothers them because they're ugly and they want to keep people in the dark and they want to make people by force follow their stupid 
backward rules. I am not against any religion. As a Baha'i, I believe in all religions. I'm against fanaticism. Being fanatic even in sport is dangerous. Fanaticism is dangerous and has to stop all over the world. Now I'm going to cry. <laughs> I've been crying back. Me. Yeah. <laughs> um, one, one point that you made is that Massa is Kurdish. Um, and and maybe you can speak to the reputation that Kurdish people have, especially Kurdish women, of being especially courageous and free-spirited and strong, not just mentally strong, but also physically strong. Like they have they have a history of being warriors. Do you think that Masa being Kurdish might have something to do with the the spark that her death lit in the and the people of Iran and people around the world? Well, you know, in 2009, when Neda was killed, Neda was also a young, beautiful woman and innocent. When Neda means calling, Mahsa means like moon-like, and her other name was Gina, which is more Kurdish, the J sound. And she was young, vivacious, lively, beautiful, with a future ahead of her. And when you when you have to resort to killing the young, which are the future of every country, you can kill the future. If you kill one Massa, one Neda, one Sohrab, there are many, Puya, there are so many young Iranian men and women that they were killed in the hands of this regime. One you kill, 10 more shows up. You can't get rid of it because we are free and we are going to stay free and we are going to be the voice of ourselves. People, they say, be the voice of the voiceless. Iranian people are not voiceless, but we need to stand up in solidarity and in support of a cause that that is beautiful, is valid, and has to come to fruition, has to come to fruition. This government from the beginning had, had tortured people of all races. Majority of Iranians are Muslims, but not like this government. They're beautiful. I, I lived it there. I lived there for 32 years. Majority of my friends, they were Muslim. I had Jewish friends, I have Christian friends, I had Baha'i friends, I have Zoroastrian friends, and people of all kinds of walks and many different segments of society in Iran. Majority of people are good, and they want just to live, to live and breathe the air, and live a beautiful life. That's what they want to live a beautiful life. That's all they want. Yeah, and and you've suggested um, that beauty itself is the regime's target because they are so ugly. They can't handle it. 
Right. Um, and so when Massa was out with her brother, actually, I understand she was wearing a headscarf, but she wasn't wearing it properly according to their standards. She was just too beautiful for their standards. Is that right? That's the story I have heard. And and I, I can I believe it because sometimes when you have light, even even when you are quiet, I have experienced that in my own life. Even when you're sitting quiet, it seems like your 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 energy repels the ones that they can handle it. They don't want that light. In some ways they may even want it, but because they can have it, they don't have it and they want to destroy it. And you know, we are here to say, no, this is not something you can stop anymore because we all over the world in solidarity of Iranian people, not just us, some of us as American Iranians, some of us, we are only born from American, from Iranian parents outside of Iran. It's also human rights. And I'm very proud of so many people all over the world that there are artists, there are musicians, there are singers, there are activists. They all have come out and spoken. They have cut their hair in solidarity with Iranian people. I should cut part of my hair today, actually, at the end of this segment. Because people, they say, why do you cut your hair? We are not cutting our hair. We don't need a haircut. We are cutting the, the ugliness of this regime, the chain, the mullahs out of our hair. There are people that there are 80-year-old women, people in their 80s, they have come out and said, if you're going to kill our children, we don't want to have your religion. The lady said, I'm Muslim. You have killed my son. And now you're killing my other children in the streets of Iran. I'm going to take my scarf off. I don't need hijab. And I'm going to cut my hair. And I'm going to join them in the street. We are joining them. Even, even though you may not even go in the street, you're joining them and you're with them. They, they are so afraid that they put the prison on fire. And then they didn't let the prisoners to run out. And some, they suffocated and they were shot at that. <laughs> Iranian young people, they still had the courage to come to the street and burn the, their flags. We had the beautiful flag of Iran with the lion and the sun. We grew up with it. It was beautiful. And we are going to bring it back. Because we are lions and lionesses. We are sheer zan and sheer man. And we are going to do it. You've told me, as other Iranian mothers have told their daughters, sheer zan bash. Sheer zan bash, be a lioness. And um, one, one of the points where I felt lowest watching the footage out of Iran recently was also when when we saw Evan prison set on fire. And um, for those who don't know, that's where many Iranian intellectuals, professors, activists, artists, um, significantly artists, poets, and other dissidents, writers, 
um, foreign citizens, I, as I understand, you know, reporters sometimes um, are imprisoned as well at even prison. That's where they are held. And um, is that where our cousin was imprisoned years ago? Well, I'm not 100% sure where, because we had so many cousins and so many people in prison. Uh, what happened was at the beginning of this regime, first they went after Baha'is. And Baha'is, they are, they are not in Quran because it's a religion that is less than 200 years old. 179, I think, is the Baha'i year. And Baha'is, they believe in all religions. In a sense, we believe it's like going to school. It's a progression, progressive revelation. So we believe in all the prophets that they came before. And then we, we, we believe in the Bab as a forerunner of Baha'i faith and Baha'u'llah as a prophet founder of Baha'i faith. The main teaching in Baha'i faith is unity of all mankind, is equality of men and women, is beauty, is love, everything, everything, the whole world, the whole creation is created on love. The country of Iran was created with Zoroastrianism and dance and songs. You can't take that out of the DNA of the people. So this is what Baha'i faith is all about. Then they arrested so many Baha'is. Your own grandparents, my parents, my brother and sister that they stayed in Iran, they suffered a lot under this regime. They have taken, they have been. So some of our relatives, they were taken, they never came out. Sometimes even they didn't give you the dead body. You just assumed that they were killed. They destroyed the Baha'i cemetery. The brutality of this government and their ignorance and their fake power is unbelievable. And then after anybody that was intellectual, you can be a Muslim. But if you can think for yourself, that scares them. You're thinking. You're just supposed to be a sheep and follow whatever this regime, their interpretation of Quran, not what Islam is all about, but the, their, the, the narrow interpretation of Islam. And they want you to follow them. I have to cover my hair because the man can handle it. Handle yourself, control yourself. And those are the things that just has to change because I have to be free to be modest, but decide how I want to live my life. And I am 100% equal of any man anywhere in this world. Not a little less, not a little more. I'm as equal. And the women... The future of Iran, women, they are going to be the main participant, the forerunner of this re revolution. It's going to happen. It's going to happen. There is no way back. And why do you think that this time is different? Because 
we are awakened. Majority of people are awakened. And this is a younger generation. I heard from a reporter that there was a time there was a program on TV, Anthony Bourdain, the ship, traveled all over the world and he went to Iran and he interviewed this reporter that he was half American, half Iranian from DC. And he was in Iran, his wife, Iranian reporter. They ended up in jail after Anthony Bourdain talked to them in the street. So he was in jail longer. He, she was in jail and released. Eventually, with the intervention of other countries and governments, and the time was up, they released him and they came to America. In an interview with Christian, Christian Amanpour, she said, in 2009, I was this generation. We were in the street, but we were still a little conservative. We were still wanting to get our rights, but we were not necessarily saying no to Islamic Republic of Iran. This generation says, we do not want Islamic of Republic of Iran, no to it. They said that to the dictator, they said, don't be afraid, don't Don't be afraid, don't be afraid, we are all in it together. And then, of course, Zan Zendegi Azadi. Zan Zendegi Azadi had become the slogan of this, this movement, at this point movement. But, but I have lots of hope, I have faith and hope, but action. And we are not asking for, 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 for war. We are not asking for killing fields. We are asking this has to come to an end. They have to leave. Time had come. People, they don't want this. Even if their great grandparents, they wanted it. This generation doesn't want this. And young men, in support of the women, side by side, side by side, came to the street and supported all the women that they were in the street. Women, they were brave enough to jump on top of the car, wave their scarf, and they say, we don't want this. They jumped in the street. They were walking in the street. They built a fire. They threw away their scarf in the fire. And they said, we don't want it. It's not about the scarf. The scarf can be beautiful like this that is from my mother. It's not about the scarf. It's about control. We are saying no to control because once you give the right to a government to control you or a group of men or even women to control you, what happens? Then you don't have a life. Everything is going to be controlled by others. That's what this is all about. And I think this generation is so fearless. When I saw the high school students, the girls, they came out it's like, I don't know where they're going. They had their backpacks on their back. They're just going with a mission, with a mission. And they sing Sherwin's song, Baroye. 
they're saying no to discrimination. They're saying no to a government that had tried to control them for all these years. Majority of people, they had to live a double life at home, do their dance. They say a woman's voice, they can handle it if it's a if it's a auditorium that is men and women. You can only sing to women audience. But regardless of all of that, women, they still succeeded in sports, in science, in art, in music, because they found their way how to put the scarf on and go around it. Maybe they don't wear bathing suits in the public, but they're, they're, they're skiers, they're mountain climbers, they're rock climbers. They have made it, and the majority of them are educated. It's just hard to live like that. That's what they don't want. Mm. And um, something that I suppose makes this time different, but also unfortunately very much the same, is the the Iranian regimes, or sorry, the Islamic regimes' brutality against children. Um, I was actually looking into into like the history of of the regime and the brutality against children, and this is not new. And I guess you you already know that. Um, but there, what's different? I do I do see more attention worldwide brought to um, to this issue among others. I just saw out of um, Amnesty Iran. They reported Iran's security forces have unlawfully killed at least 23 children to crush what many people in Iran consider a popular uprising against the Islamic Republic. The victims aged between 11 and 17 include 20, sorry, 20 boys and three girls. Why? <laughs> You can never question why when it comes to brutal people. It's like throughout history, people that are power hungry, all they know is power. They do everything to hold on to that power. And in some ways, I can't explain what I feel this time. In one hand, I'm so proud of these young Iranian people, so fearless, so clear. They're so clear in what they want. At the same time, we are losing our children. Can we lose our children and still stay quiet and say, well, okay, we are just going to go along with whatever it was? Of course not. And there's the why is, in some ways, isn't that funny? that they're afraid of an 11-year-old child. They're afraid of a 15-year-old, 17-year-old, even 22-year-old. Massa. is their fear is because they're ugly. Their fear is themselves. Their fear is themselves. They see your light. They see your beauty. They see that you're clear what you want, and they, they have they don't want to lose control. They don't want to lose control. The people who were religious at one point, they say, we don't want you. This is a country 
that they killed their athletes. The man brought a gold medal. They said you were in the street another time a, a year ago. You were you were in the street because people are suffering on many different levels. You were with the people we saw you. They put him in jail. They killed him. Their own athlete. So how can I even answer why this song Baroye that she wrote and sang? Baroye means for for this for that. What for for this for that? And that song is also translated into English and some singers, some Iranian Americans, some Americans, they sang it. And you know, it, the, the reason I say we should all stand up, not just if I'm Iranian-ness in me, and in New York City, that mural of Massa, that was not done by an Iranian artist. And then the gentleman, that came and played a classical music right there was in solidarity with the rights of Iranian, with their cause. So there are people who are awakened all over the world. But what we are saying, what I have said years ago, even President Obama, I said, do you think you can change this government? Please don't negotiate with them. As long as you make deals with them, they stay in power longer. So what we are trying to do this time more and more to, to explain it to the best of our ability to the, to the governments and to administrations that the time had come that you support the people, not war, not war, support the people by not negotiating with this government. And you can paralyze them if you don't negotiate with them. They, they have showed for 43 years that they don't change. They can't change. Why is it you think this year all of a sudden they're going to become enlightened? They are not going to change. They are not going to change like Taliban in Afghanistan, a generation passes, they come tell you, we are not the same one. What happened? They were exactly the same one. Women are suffering in Afghanistan under Taliban. Iranians, they have suffered for years. Even our boys are not safe in the streets, as you just said it. Our boys are not safe. You are only safe if you pretend that you have no brain and you are not thinking, and you, and you 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 just follow like a zombie, and people they are sick of it. They they can't. They are to the end of their rope. Yes, and and you were saying that um, some some young people have been able to still go to school and get an education, actually many, the, the literacy and that education rates are very high among women in Iran. Um, though unfortunately, not everyone has the privilege of an education in Iran. And we, we know if the education is not a crime movement um, that Baha'is have, have led for, for quite some time now, 
doing um, classes underground and even online. People around the world have volunteered, professors around the world have volunteered their time to to educate the Baha'is of Iran, which is incredible. And that's actually, that's not new. That's been happening for quite some time. And so the the building, um, the building and the the advocating for human rights, it, it, maybe to some people it seems new, like, oh, this is new, this is um, current events, but it's it's much more than just a few months. This has been decades in the making. Um, and I'm curious, like when you reflect on your time living in Iran, how were you as a Baha'i and how are the Baha'i people in general treated under the Shah? Baha'is in Iran, they have suffered from the inception of Baha'i faith from the very beginning of it, which was under completely a different regime, it was a regime before Shah's regime, before Pahlavi dynasty. And at the beginning of it had been lots of killings of the forerunners of Baha'i faith, which was in a Bobby. And then, you know, on, then Baha'i. Under the Shah, I was born under Shah's dynasty. I was born at that time. My parents, my father was a Muslim. And then before I knew him as my father, he had, some people say convert. He believed it's like going from high school to college. He had just gone from high school to college, you know? So he said he, he became a Baha'i. And then he was traveling and he was a chemist. He was working for a carpet company at the time. Then he moved to Kerman, the city of Kerman, in the southern part of Iran. That's where he met my mother. And then they got married. And they had they, when they started their family, they had they ended up with six children. I'm the fourth one. I was born in Kerman, the city where my grand, maternal grandparents lived. We used to visit them every other year. They used to visit us every other year. And then we lived in Tehran uh, when I was a child. And I remember, like, uh, I was born in my grandparents' house. It was very special. I had a vision one time. I saw myself being born. All I knew, I was born after breakfast. <laughs> That's what I knew. So my parents then, they traveled to other parts of the country. They had my oldest sister, Tahereh, that, that I've lost. And then they had uh, my brother, Iraq. Then they decided to go pioneering to Kurdistan. That's why my mother had such a love for Kurdish people. They lived among the Kurds in Iraq, near Kirkuk and Soleimaniye. And she loved those people. And then they couldn't uh, extend their passport after a year or so. They ended up leaving. She said, I always remember at the bus stop, we hugged each other and my Kurdish friend cried. They didn't want us to leave. They liked us so much. And then my mother was pregnant with my third, with my second brother, the third child in the family. His name was Manucher. He was born in Tehran. But my mother always called him Kurdi, like a Kurdish. Kurdi, that was his nickname. And he always said he has the spirit of the Kurdish people in him. 
then I was born in Kerman. Then my younger brother was born in Tehran, Hishmatullah. Then my younger sister, Nader, was born in Tehran. My oldest sister and I, we were the only two that we were born in Kerman. She was born at the hospital. I was born in my grandparents' house. They were Baha'is. But in Baha'i faith, as you know, you don't become a Baha'i because you were born in a Baha'i family. You have the right at the age of maturity, which is considered 15, to decide for yourself if this is for you or not. I actually waited a year. I was like thinking a little. And then I became, a, I signed the card and I became a Baha'i. You know, I became legally like as an older person, as an adult person, a Baha'i. So far, I haven't found anything better. And you know what is funny under this regime? When they put the Baha'is in prison, sometimes they put other people, like a journalist had come from the West or journalists in Iran, the daughter of Rapsanjani, which he was the president in the 80s. He was also president at one time. His own daughter, was put in prison as a journalist. In prison, he she ended up getting to know Baha'i and Baha'i faith. When she was released from prison, every time a prisoner was released, a Baha'i prisoner, she went, she still wears hijab, but she said, Baha'is, they were the kindest people to me. And she said, what is so strange among all the minorities Baha'is are the only one who believe in our religion, believe in Muhammad, as they believe in Jesus, in Moses, in Zoroaster. And you are, you are discriminated against them more than anybody else. How strange is that? So she became a defender of Baha'is. The night of the fire at Evin Prison, Johnny also ha has some other children. One of his sons was in prison. He was home visiting, and then he was supposed to go back. They told him, don't come back tonight. And that tells you something, that that was intentional, that they did that intentional. And many people, they know these things. Some of it is knowing. So my father, anyway, getting back to my parents, I lived basically I only lived in Kerman for six months. Then my mother came to Tehran, you know, because I had other children. So it came to Tehran. At that time, he, he had three children, and then I was the fourth one. So I was mainly raised in Tehran. My father was a, uh, in Tehran when he started in, in Kerman. He got the job as a banker. Then in Tehran, he had a high position in the National Bank of Iran. And he had a very good reputation as an honest, decent, kind man. My mother was more of a homemaker, but she was a force in the society. She was a and So I called her. Years ago, I wrote a story. I called it Heartisan, Citizen of the Heart. You remember that. I have lots of artwork goes with it. And citizen of the heart means it doesn't really matter where you were born. I was always asked, where were you born? 
what is your accent, all of that. I, w- I didn't become American citizen until 25, 26 years after I lived in America. And, and I remember that when my mother passed, you were only a month old when my mother passed. And I remember when I wrote that story in the late 90s, I dedicated it to my mother as a artisan. She was a humanist, she was strong, but she was gentle strength. She embodied love. She grew up with poetry, music. She was a mystic. And that's what is inside of me. When people, they see the ugliness of Iran on the surface, I know what is underneath. There are many layers. The layers never went away. It just went under. And people, they saw this gray, black surface. And they said, that's Iran. That was never Iran. I knew that was never Iran. And when 2009 Green Movement happened, one of our relatives called me, American relative, and said, well, I can't believe there are women in this street. I said, I believe it. I was raised by this mother. I believe it. Iranian women, they're strong. And they were so beautiful in the forefront. And now this time, no scarf in the forefront. I don't even wear your scarf loosely or in green or red. They want you to be black, gray, dark. They don't want beauty to be seen. And we grew up with poetry, poetry of, you know that. I have this book always on my table, poetry of Hafez. The mystic poet of Persia, we go to his shrine. He's an oracle. We open his book and he tells us our future. And our future is full of hope. We never, ever lose hope. I have a message for Iranian government. We never, ever lose hope. And we are going to be ourselves. The beauty that had is inside of our DNA, even if we were born in San Francisco. When Mahsa was killed and people, they came out all over the world. One of my friends in California, he's Armenian origin, but Iranian. He posted something that touched me so much. He said, today, I, I understand today that nobody had ever immigrated from Iran. First, you call them and say, oh, really? And he said, we only took our bodies with us. We left our heart and soul in Iran. And today, we are with Mahsa, with Mahsa's family, with the, all the young people of Iran that they're standing up for their rights and fighting for their rights. And Azadi, Zan, Zendigi, Azadi. Woman, life, freedom. Thank you, Mom. As you were talking about Mama June and Baba Hussein, your parents, um, the story of Mama June um, confronting 
her husband's boss who threatened to withdraw his pension. Um, I was wondering if maybe you wanted to tell that story because I think that that's a good example of how she was a lioness and she did it in a very calm and dignified way. One day, uh, my father had a very high position at the bank and he, the, the man that was above him, the main guy, the CEO guy, he was very prejudiced and he knew that he's a Baha'i. He was kind of a force to retire and he retired, but they didn't give his pension for two years. He still had five children at home. We were still young. I was in high school, you know, and my younger brother, younger sister, and another brother. And, you know, so it was very difficult. And we just built the new house and we were moving. To, we lived in Shemiron near the mountain. And so there was a much bigger mortgage. So I remember my father had lost his pension, had lost everything and is retired. And he was, a, you know, he was just a workaholic anyways. And he was always very fast. We called him Shetaban because it means like, <laughs> always in rush and so he he was he found another job he was you know he was needed and he worked in another place in another bank that they just started and he was advisor and all of that but it was very hard on him because you know he had lost his pension after 30 years of working for the Iranian bank of Iran so my mother always said, even when I complain about your father, you need to know this. He's the most honest, decent, dignified human being I've ever known. He worked so hard for this bank. And this, regardless of the money that they needed, that it's not fair. I have to fix this because it's not fair. One day, she didn't drive. My mother didn't drive. When I was a kid, we, first we didn't even have a car. And then later, you know, everybody had a car. But my mother told my oldest brother, Gairad, asked him to drive him to the bank. So, and we lived in Shemiron, so it was like an hour drive. So they went there. My brother told the story in a book he wrote that we got there. She got out of the car, and she was kind of a short lady like you and me, and kind of a chubby. She said she got her purse. She said, you can come with me to my brother. So they went together. First, the guy, of course, you know, those banks and all of that, there's always security. There's always something. You can just go to the office. But the, the gentleman is very busy. The right now doesn't have time to see you. My mother said, I sit here until the gentleman has time to see me. So finally, they realized she means business. She was not threatening because she was very unassuming in some ways, but she was very strong inside. So she meant business. She sat there. Finally, they said, he has time to see you. My mother walked there, my brother on his side. They sat there. My mother looked at him. Said, how can you do that? How can you do that to a man 
that worked for this bank for 30 years with honesty, with dignity, with decency. How can you do that? And told him, when I look at you, I think there's some goodness in you. There is goodness in you. Tap into your goodness. Tap into your soul and heart. Maybe you can connect with it. And maybe you know how to do that. You can change it that he can get his pension that he well deserves. And we have a big family and we have a mortgage we pay to this bank right here. So she gets up and the guy says, well, we'll see what we can do. My mom says, I said what you can do and you can do that. Thank you. He walked out. Two days later, everything changed. They let him have his pension. He lost the two years. They never gave him the two years. But that's how she did it. She would she would look in your eyes and she says, maybe there's still a human being somewhere on the other side of you. You have to tap into it. You have lost your connection. You have lost contact with yourself. You have lost connection with yourself. And so that, like, that shows how strong she was and the way she raised us. I don't remember her ever punishing me. She disciplined you, but she didn't punish you. Because if you punish, she turns around. I may do the same thing I did before. I did. But she explained it. She would bring it to your level, like with the grandkids. She would sit down and she would look into their eyes how good you are, praise them. Then say, but you can do better. You can do this, you know. That's how she handled it with the CEO of the biggest bank in Iran and brought some humanities in him. And you know what happened when revolution happened? I left Iran two months after revolution took place. The revolution took place in February 1979, and I left mid-April 1979. It's a long story. I went to Greece, I went to France, I went to London for four or five months, then I came to America. Because I had admissions from a couple of universities here, but I didn't have passports because during the revolution, the embassy ended up closing, there were lots of stuff happening. Before hostage crisis, but was still stuff happening. So it's it's just unbelievable that all of these things would happen. But when I was there, every day, we used to get one or two newspapers. Now my father decided we have to get all the papers. There was no internet or anything else. So we would get morning paper, noon paper, evening paper. My mom would run to the door to get the paper before my sister that was pregnant she not seeing it. On the front page, there was always a bloody picture. So one of the people they killed was this man that was mean to your grandfather. So he was killed. Who cried? Your grandmother, Mama June. And I don't believe in brutality. 
that's just wrong. So that kind of a person, she was a sheer Zen, is a lioness that stands up but doesn't attack. She didn't attack, but she changed the world. And these women, these young women in Iran, and all the brave men that they support them, the future of Iran is in their hands. They are going to handle it much better because they know better. There's a gentle strength that is much stronger than any weapon. Your grandmother's weapon. She never carried a weapon. She didn't want knives in the kitchen. She would never carry the weapon. She never had the smallest interest in even any of her kids to be even close to any of these situations everybody is part of as exterior strength, but she had inner strength. And that's where I come from. That's where you come from. And we have to remember that's the most important. There are many ways to change the world. One is not creating more enemies. Awakening. If when we awaken ourselves, the environment around us awakens. We can never awaken the whole world, but we can awaken as many people as we can. And we have to awaken ourselves first. Yeah. Maman June stood up, but she didn't attack. No. She didn't need to. Her yeah. presence was enough. She didn't need to attack. And, and Baba Hussein took a similar approach when he wrote on behalf of the Baha'i Bank, which we discovered rather recently, actually, we discovered those letters in a vault um, on behalf of the Nonahalan Company, the bank that he worked for thereafter. Um, and it, at the end of one, of, I think at the end of the first letter, he was, I mean, he was firm and, and basically he was saying um, he was asking the the rising regime that would become the Islamic Republic. He was asking that they not close the accounts of the Baha'is. Um, and he he said something like, well, surely you will do the right thing. You know, I, I, I'd be so grateful if you could just do the right thing. And it was a similar approach that you were describing of Mama and June in that interaction with the with the banker. Um, just reconnect with yourself. You yeah. can do better. I believe you can do better. But but we know that's a beautiful story um, that you just told, but we know that the fight that Baba Hossein, well, not the fight, but the, um, the dissent that Baba Hossein was expressing regarding those accounts at Nah Nahalan Company he, I guess you could say he lost, and, and the Baha'is lost their money. They lost their livelihoods. They didn't lose themselves. They didn't lose their faith. Baha'is that they were taken to prison or every time they were interrogated, like Bobo saying, <laughs> like your own grandfather, all the Iranian government would tell them to do, if you recant, you can leave. 
and nobody recanted. Why should I recant a religion that has unites? Why should I recant a religion that believes in equality of men and women? Why should I recant it? So they didn't recant. They gave their lives. They gave their belongings. They, your grandparents, they lost everything they had. They were destitute towards the end. But he always said, hold your head up. Be proud. Be proud. We are not feeble. We have faith. We have hope. And we believe in something beautiful. So we can recant. We don't recant. We don't recant. And Baba Hussein himself, when they, I was still in Iran at the beginning of revolution, when they came to Nonaulan company, and they took everybody kind of like a hostage, and they closed the door, and he was supposed to come home. He didn't. He had a driver. By that time, he was not driving. He had a driver. And then somebody else managed to call to say what had happened. Finally, he came home. So by that time, they have they have closed everything, and it, it, he was interrogated most than everybody else because he was the main banker in Nonahalan Company. Nonahalan Company was a Baha'i company basically that was encouraged by the son of Baha'u'llah, Abdul Baha that this is like a company that children, they can have an account and if everybody, and so this was a very like a spiritual small company. Nonaholon means young, young children. Nonahol. Nonahol is like a young tree. They're like young trees. So of course, everything was lost. Of, of course, all of that happened. Of course, your grandparents, they lost everything. But they never lost faith. They never lost themselves. All of those Baha'is, they lost their lives. All of those other non-Baha'is, they lost their lives. Christians, Jews, Muslims, many Muslims, because majority of Iranians are Muslims. Not like that government, but they are they believe in Islam. And, you know, and many of them, they are educated, they are progressive. I grew up in a progressive family, and I cannot become like this. I, I can't like go hide myself. Why should I? Because I have nothing to hide. When you have nothing to hide, hide nothing. Why this government has to lie so much? They have a lot to lie. Why they, do they have to be that brutal? Because they have something to control. In some ways, I have pity for them. In some ways, I, they're feeble. They're just brutal. And that's how they have kept the country hostage. If you're not in prison, you're in the prison of Iran. And then if you're not in prison, are you free? Freedom is the freedom of the spirit. It is a state of being. You can be in prison and be free. You can be outside and be a hostage. So the freedom of the spirit, nobody can take that away from me. 
because my spirit is free. You, you have no control over that. Some Iranians in 2009 in prison, they said that to Iranian government. Said you can put me in prison, you can torture me. You can control that. You can control that. So that's when, you know, I'm like, I become very joyous and excited and I'm very sad at the same time. But I'm proud of young Iranian people today. I'm so proud of them. I want to say one more thing. That square, that circle in Iran that they call Azadi had a different name. It was built by a, a Baha'i architect, actually, that he, he was a young man. He won the contest. And it, the name of it was Aryameh, Shahyad. Shahyad means in the, in, in the name of the king, Shah, Shahyad. Under this regime, they changed the name. They didn't want to have anything to do with kings and monarchs, so Azadi. Wow, what a perfect name today. Your pictures shows like women in front of that. They have their <laughs> long hair and somebody's braiding the other person's hair because that's Azadi Square. The government doesn't own that. We own it is ours. Freedom is ours, not theirs. <laughs> that is a form of poetic justice that <laughs> they, I didn't actually know that, that it was this regime that renamed it Azadi Square. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. That's oddly satisfying. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, we've done so much crying, but I think we can laugh at that for a moment. <laughs> Um, another story that came up of Baba Hussein is um, his brother, you've told me about his brother calling him Sag. He would um, sit in the back of the bus and and chastise him and, and call him names. He would call him a dog, a Sag. My, my father right? was not on the same bus. Mm. He would just say it. <laughs> oh, okay. Yeah. And and you've told me that Baba Hussein would actually deliver groceries to the to this brother and his wife, um, and they wouldn't even allow him to come inside, I guess because he was a Baha'i because he had left um, the Muslim faith, and I don't know I I assume it was some sort of like betrayal the family felt or misunderstanding. I mean, what is hate but just misunderstanding, um, cloaked by a false sense of righteousness i guess and that's what causes a brother to call another brother a dog ignorance ignorance, ignorance. yeah yeah ignorance um and that that story also reminds me of how we can practice decorum and dignity in the face of hate and just show the contrast if not for any other reason but to show the contrast yeah, because because the way uh, Baba Hussein, your grandfather, he he was uh, charity actually is a big part of most religions, all religions, including Islam. Baba Hussein was a Muslim and practicing Muslim, but apparently he was not fanatic. Um, my grandmother, 
my paternal grandmother, she was very young when she became a widow. She was only 23 years old and she had three children. But she loved her husband so much, he got sick and in a few days he died. Your grandfather was only two years old and his brother was a baby and there was an older sister. So my grandmother in those days with hardly any education, she worked very hard and raised three kids. Your grandfather and, and his brother, they were sent to the same school. The best school for boys in Tehran at that time was called Darul Funun. But Bobo saying your grandfather was a very good studious student and his brother just hated school. So every day there was problem. My grandmother had to go find him in the street, take him back to school. Um, so my, your grandfather became very educated and his brother didn't have much education. That's okay if you don't have much education, but he was also very fanatic. But believe it or not, your grandmother would still say somewhere he has a good heart. <laughs> That's who your grandmother was. But because of his ignorance, he, he would say lots of off things. And he would like come to our house to see his mother, but he wouldn't like touch a food if a Baha'i had touched, you know, so all of those backwardness. But uh, they, were, they were not very, they were very kind of a poor. We were middle class ourselves at that time. We, then we became high middle class, but we were not high class. We were, but we did much better financially than them. So your grandfather, that Bank of Iran was like a big compound had its own hospital, had its own swimming pool, had its own groceries. It was like a little, it was like a little town for itself. So when your grandfather would do some shopping like for, for our family, like for winter and all of that, he, he would do it double and he would make enough, he would buy enough that he could take half of it to his brother's house because he knew they needed it. He didn't even own a car yet. He would call a taxi. He would take him across the city to take it to his brother. And sometimes, especially his wife was so backwards that when she would knock, said, put it by the door. And my gra your grandfather, he didn't do it for her or for them, it was a charity but he did it for the greater good. He did it because he believed that we are here to help each other. We are here to help our other humans. If you are a little more fortunate, help the ones that are less fortunate. And in other times, somebody maybe emotionally needs help. Somebody financially needs help. Always be like put others before you, but that's who he was. He came eventually to our house when he didn't have anywhere to go. And my mother allowed him to stay for two weeks until we found him a place to live because they ended up in divorce, his brother and his wife, they ended up in divorce. 
but my my father still went, paid his rent, and visited him. And occasionally he would come to our house and visit his mother, you know. And wow. your your grandmother was always your grandma was always kind. Just had no had no hate in her heart. And on that way, things upsets me a lot in the world. I can't I can't let hate go inside of me. I just say, what is it we can do to change? Do you hate the mullahs who have taken over your country? I don't hate them because Sometimes I know it doesn't sound right when I say it. They are not that important for me to hate them. They just, like usually when you're in a class setting, the smartest kids should take over. So we don't want to be living in a country that they want, that they have the less intelligent ruling the majority. The majority should rule, not the minority. Not the minority. I'm not talking about minority as numbers. I'm talking about the one you have you have the most fanatic approach and majority of people they don't want that, then you shouldn't rule. They are telling you in your face we don't want it. I just don't want them to have control. They want to live that way, they can go live that way. Mm. Yeah, you've told me not to be surprised at how people can flip flop during times of revolution and as you're telling these stories I, i'm hearing um like that banker that your mom that mom on june confronted you know he ended up kind of deferring to deflecting to our side of things and unfortunately becoming a p political prisoner um and so in that way he kind of flip-flopped you know but in a good way he unfortunate of how how it ended but maybe he saw the light and um, saw a light within himself and reconnected with his higher, better self. Um, and then I also hear, um, well, this this was like an unlikely allyship that formed. And then I also hear an unlikely or unfortunate betrayal that happened between Baba Hussein and his brother. And I, I'm curious if any other examples come up for you in terms of how people flip-flopped or surprised you during times of revolution? I don't think his brother ever flip-flopped. He was always like a kind of a level that he was. That's who he was. I don't think he flip-flopped, but he didn't think for himself. Whatever like the mullah at the time that he went to whatever mosque he went, said he would repeat mm -hmm. it. Many people, even in our time, they parrot what is parroted to them as opposed to say, what do I think about that? As opposed to, it's like, almost like a, it's raw. It's thoughts, they're like food. It, you have to digest it. And it's not digested thought. He wasn't at the level to be able to digest. But then kindness and goodness has something in it that even the most ignorant can still feel it somewhere. But he didn't flip-flop. He just, he, he became a little better to whatever level he was capable of. But he never really, he never, he never, 
He didn't become enlightened. Just changed a little. Do you think that people like him have the capacity to change? To whatever degree that is possible for them. Because my father's family, majority of them, except my father and my paternal grandma also was a Baha'i from his side. The rest of them were not. He had lots of Muslim relatives. They were beautiful. They were artists. They were scientists. They were spiritual. They were. We had lots of majority of our friends. They were Muslim. I dated Muslims. You know, I have nothing against any Muslim. I, what I have is against fanaticism, because that brings you down. Whatever lifts your spirit, you know. And many people, uh, my, my my own mother, you know, before me, before I, I was conceived, had a brother. His brother was a mathematician and was a musician and had a great voice. And unfortunately, he was only 27 years old that he died under an up back operation, you know? So... There are also people in that level, they're enlightened, no matter even if they're mystics. They're mystics. His whole, his, your grandmother, your uh, your great-grandmother, grandparents, Mama June's parents, they were all very spiritual people. They were Baha'is, but they were also, before they were Baha'is, they were always like part of the, like a Rumi, the poetic side of life the spiritual side of life, they knew what is really important, the beauty, the love. They live for love. They live for that. We we both have love around our necks. Yeah, I have love. <laughs> <laughs> I have also this love. Uh. <laughs> and I have the I guess I have the Persian version somewhere of this love. Mm, like yours. Yeah. And and even um even when p members of our family tell their stories, tragic stories, I've noticed that there is a thread that runs through our family um that shows we're all very creative. Many of us are very creative and artistic in our expression. And I wanted to read part of who man's story that he shared publicly the other day um, of his one of two experiences with the morality police um and i i wanted to read this one because i i just i can really appreciate how he tells the story and how he weaves the imagery and the things that he remembers so viv vividly um, and the things that kind of elude him and i i think that also shows how how trauma can um, can kind of blur things blur things for a person who's going through it and and maybe you can um, fill in some of the the blanks of the translation. I'm just going to read the English translation. He writes, "I was a kid. I was about seven years old. My mom and dad's friends were at our house. We went underground to play ping pong. My mom was upstairs. A bell rang. 
another one of my mom's friends came and started talking a lot. In my world, I didn't understand anything except the faces that I saw. I was terrified. The game of ping pong turned into a horror ring. A little while later, one morning, the doorbell rang. Some people were pouring in the house and searched everywhere. My brother was beside my mom and I was in a hurry. They took dad. My mom insisted on going with the baby in her arms. She didn't want to leave my dad alone. I went to my grandparents' house. A little while later, we were at my grandfather's and grandmother's house. Again, some people shed their blood again, my brother in the arms of my mom, and I am now 22 years old, and I am still terrified. I went to school, elementary school, guides, school. The educational teacher used to expel me from the class. And I had to stand at the office when it was time to say prayers. The fourth year of high school, I filled the university form with the hope of going to study art, the loss of the case, my dreams turned into water. Art lover, I finally found my way, but before that, one of our relatives was taken to prison. I feel bad. My mom's uncle was kidnapped by another group. Bad news every day. I woke up. I have worked, and why? After 25 years of waiting, I came back to the land of a foreign land. My body is here, but my soul has not yet left my country after 40 years. And again, horror, fear, bad news. I sat down, for example, to have breakfast, as promised by many people that it is good that you are not here. But my mind, my heart, and all my feelings are there where the breadbringer is raped. An innocent girl is dying to be guided, and a thousand other news, a bite in my mouth, tastes like poison. I am looking at the photo of an innocent girl. My tears are sitting beside me. My mother is sitting in front of my brother. What happened? I want to scream and scream, oh God, until when? Oh God, don't you see all this oppression under the name of the Islamic kindness that has made more elite people leave the country than me? I am leaving. One of the reasons that that I was encouraged by my own parents to leave at the time, 43 years ago, believe it or not. After I finished college, I went to Europe. I worked in different places. And then I, uh, I decided that I want to go back to college and get my master's degree. So I went to Shiraz. I went to Pahlavi Shiraz University. So I was there when revolution, the second semester revolution was really happening, you know. So like I re I remember like those times. And I remember coming to Tehran, not Tehran, it was a city carriage near Tehran where my parents lived at that time. 
And then, uh, like, I'm waiting, basically, <laughs> waiting what to do. My parents, they talked to me, and they said, if you love us, we'd rather you to leave. Because you have admissions from couple universities, and you can go study abroad. I would... I want to stay closer to them because I was the only one, although I was the fourth child, I was not the youngest, but I was the only one who was single. And I thought, like, I can help them more. But, you know, they said they had some Baha'i friends nearby that their daughter, they, one day they were not home and their daughter was taken. And that, I guess, really scared my mom that someday, like, if they are somewhere, if they come take me. So anyway, that was one of the reasons that I was encouraged to leave. But because it was still the early part of the revolution, so I was, um, I, I just went to the airport. I came from the airport. I always remember the last hug of my mother, the last hug of my father. My father came to the airport. My mother stayed home. He just said goodbye at the door to me. So and my father had to go to work from, from the airport. So there are so many, there are millions of people in Iran. There are millions of stories. And many of them, like my story is not any bigger than anybody else. Other people's stories, everybody had suffered somehow, even the one they were not killed or even they were not in jail. Every day you don't know when they're gonna come after you, when they're gonna come take you, when they're gonna come take your husband or your wife or your daughter or your son, or when, when is your turn? Because there's no telling, you know, there's no telling. And this story, when I read this story in Persian from Human, my nephew, First, I said, is that all happened to you? Or is it like, is it now? What, what is this? And he said, I may not remember my exact age. I may have some of it mixed up, but it happened. And he told me another story happened to him when he was young. And he says he was at his grandparents. He used to go home to take the metro, metro, the subway and bus. So when he's changing, he gets off the bus to get on the other, this Morag police or Pastoron or Basijis, they took him. He said, I think the reason for that was I looked too westernized. I had some clothes, some hats that like my uncle had sent me from the West. And I was not allowed to look like that. And then he was taken and his Poor mother is home with his brother, and my brother was out of town. So it's like, it's after midnight, and he's crying. He says, can I allow me to call at least tell my mother where I am? Because she doesn't know where I, I am. And this is a long time ago, so there's pre all of this internet and all of that. So finally, she manages. One was nice enough to say you can call one time. So he called. And then my sister-in-law calls her family and they all go from one place to another. They still don't know what detention. Until they go, they find him. Eventually they manage somehow to get him out. 
it's, it's so many stories and that fear or that shock that goes inside of you, it lasts. With me, when I came to America, I didn't mind 4th of July if I was watching it, but I didn't like it if I was not watching because when I lived in Iran at the beginning of revolution time and when revolution took place, I was there only a few months, right? But I remember we had curfew after curfew. The curfew was like until 10, until 9. And so whatever the curfew was, sometimes you knew you can't leave home, but you hear like shotgun. You don't know if they killed somebody. You don't know if they were shooting up in the air. You didn't know. And if somebody in your family was not home yet, you always worried that, oh, okay, it's close to the curfew. Now what can you do, you know? Sometimes the phones, they were disrupted. You know, sometimes the connections were not good. You couldn't call somebody. So there was all of these things. And of course, I have left Iran 43 years ago. I have lived most of my life outside of Iran, but Iran is still here. I've never left. It's still here. It's like your first love is still there, you know, here with you. And if things would have been beautiful, but was not what you were used to, you say, okay, you know, it's life. But it's not. But as far as Baha'is, the religion I come from, Baha'is, they also suffered under, under the last dynasty, Shah's dynasty. Baha'is are all for education, education of women and all of that. Women actually are the first uh, teachers of the children. So their education is even more encouraged as far as in Baha'i faith. But in the 50s, there was some uprising in Iran. There are lots of controversies around it, but Iran could have become a democratic society someday, believe. But when Shah was taken out of Iran. The Shah's father, the story is, you know, Shah's father was disposed. And then Shah was only a young man, 22 years old. He was put in his place. And then it was early 1950s, which I was very young. I wasn't even in school yet. So there was uprising and was uh, the prime minister, Mossadegh, and was tied to the oil and all of that. The oil, we owned it, but they want to own it foreign countries and control it. So anyways, when at that time there were some mullahs, they started saying horrible things against Baha'is and rumors and all of that. So there were lots of killings, especially in smaller places all over Iran. And some Baha'is, they were killed at that time. But we still had to go to school. Our parents, they still you know, would get us ready, send us to school and they help us to stay safe. And then later you forget, like in the 60s, 70s, life became more and more normal. And people in Iran, in that song, Baraye, Sherin sings it. People are fighting for what? For having a normal life. One of the lines is that. So. <laughs> yeah. And and one of the the fanatic sentiments that's that 
led up to the revolution in 79 was the anti-Western sentiments on the part of the Islamists. Um, and I, I don't know if, if everyone knows this, but Death to America was actually originally an Iranian thing. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, we did it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah but I, I mean, as you've explained to me, they weren't saying death to Americans. They were saying death, death to America, um, death to Western imperialism, um, which is understandable to some extent. And then um, also coupled with that was death to Western culture. And um you know the the rioters and the supporters they they just they I guess they they wanted to maybe live freely but in their own way and in doing so curbing the the human rights of their fellows and then like as you've said Iran had so much oil wealth at the time but the people weren't necessarily seeing any of it so like when they were saying death to America were they saying death to a democracy because they couldn't have a democracy of their own no i think i think what happened this is my take on it you know i'm not very political i'm more like human rights you know but this is my understanding and it's very limited because i'm not that educated when it comes to politics majority of people they live the normal life and majority of us the life got better and better and better under the shah one of the things was we had a white revolution, they called it. Women at one point, they were not voting in Iran. And then it was in the 60s, then women could vote. And women, we had prime ministers as women. You know, we had ministers, minister of education was a lady, you know. So things were just improving. Shirin Abadi, that became uh, the first Iranian that got the Nobel Peace Prize, she was a judge in the 70s. The revolution happened. They told her, you can't be a judge. You have, you can, maybe you can be a lawyer, but you can't be, a, a woman cannot be a judge. Under Islamic law, a woman cannot be a judge and a woman's two witness, two women witness equates to one man witness. There was all of these things in it. So anyways, like, Everything was improving. One of the things that improved actually with that white revolution, there was a time was uh, was costly to go to university and get more education. You know, it was costly. So, and you had to take entry exam. So if you passed it and if you couldn't afford it, especially in a better or, or private university, then you couldn't go. So under uh, that uh, white revolution, one of the things that changed, if you passed it, you were in. There was one promise you had to make. Like if you went to college four years, you had to promise to stay in the country for four years to serve your country, not even being there, just staying in the country. You didn't have to work for uh, government offices. You just had to stay in the country. So that was the only thing you had to promise. So lots of things changed. I remember people that before, if they were lucky, they would finish high school. No, they were doctors, they were engineers because they managed to go to university. And Baha'is, we all went to universities at that time. Uh, you know, my, my own sister, my own brother, myself, you know, we all became educated. My younger sister, we, we, we were all 
college graduates. Under this regime, they made life very hard for the Baha'is. Then they banned Baha'is from going to university. That was when educated Baha'is, they decided to establish this underground university to educate the young after, after high school. And then they would apply to some universities in the West. And if they could get out, the, the classes they took was they became transferred students. So this government did crackdown. And my cousin, Sina, he was in prison. I believe at one time he was in prison in Esfahan. So it was not even prison. But he was a doctor. He even healed some of the uh, prisoners inside of the prison. He was in prison more than once. His crime is a Baha'i. And he is part of the that underground university educating the young. There's so many stories. It was in, in, in the 80s, uh, early part of 80s, that there were uh, a group of women in Shiraz. They were hanged, they were killed. Among them was a 15-year-old girl, Mona. Mona was a 15-year-old girl that she, she had classes for the young kids in their house, for the young kids. They hanged her. We have a documentary that they made in Canada, Mona and her story. It's about her life. And then they took her father and they imprisoned him and they killed him just because of their religion and because of trying to educate the public. They don't want you to go to school if you don't become educated. You can be trained to have a degree. They don't want you to think for you. They don't want you to be educated. So many Baha'is, they suffered. Many non-Baha'is, they suffered. All it took if you had a view that they didn't like to hear because they didn't want you to have your own mind, your own faculties. And, and as you've described, the, the pendulum was swinging throughout your lifetime. And even before, like when we were looking into the 1930s and um, back then Iran was ruled by Reza Shah Pahlavi, right? Yeah, Shah's that, father. Shah's father. Okay, and he idolized the West as well, and and he went as far as to ban the veil. Actually, you you've told me about a time when the police would rip them off the heads of women in the streets, and so that was another another yeah. very, I guess you could say, pro-Western extreme of violating yeah. human rights in another way. Because my my older grandma, my paternal grandma, told me this that. It was like for women that they were not used to not having hijab, then it was very difficult. Some of them, they didn't want to come out during the day. They would come out at night in the dark because they didn't want to be seen. Because that's also another extreme. Under the Shah, the Shah I grew up under, it was like, you want to wear, wear it. You want to have chador. You want to have scarf. Or you don't want to. It's your choice basically became your choice. I even went to school. Sometimes there was one girl in class had scarf. Okay. 
But you know what was funny when I was like in high school? When you were in school, nobody had hijab. We had in in grade school, most of our teachers, they were women, even for boys' school, they were women. In high school, most of our teachers, there were some women, some men. And the same girls that the family expected them to wear a scarf coming to school. In school, we didn't have anybody, nobody had scarf on. So the teacher is a man, but it's, it's like, it was more like, what the society accepted, what the family, their reputation in the society or whatever else was, there's no rhyme or reason. And that's why like sometimes people, they think under this regime, people, they didn't sing, people, they didn't dance, people, they didn't. Many Iranians actually under this regime, because there was nothing to watch on TV, People, they started teaching their own children more and more music, singing, because in my time, your entertainment came from outside through your TV and radio and record stores and all of that partying. Under this regime, people, they started creating their own band at home. <laughs> you know, they taught each other. So things underneath didn't necessarily change but became difficult. Crack down if you had a party. Crack down if you hold a, your boyfriend or girlfriend's hand. Crack, just, just life difficult. Like I have to marry someone because he held my hand. I just don't want to marry him. You know, they made life difficult because of that. And also even in Islam, um, under in Baha'i faith, the age of maturity is 15 for boys and girls, the same. In Islam, the age of maturity for boys is 15, for girls is nine. Because in hotter climates, women they can grow up faster. They can have their maturity, like menstruation faster, earlier. Now, you are not at the age to be married. But okay, they, they said, okay, now she can be married. Also, under this regime, a child is going to kindergarten. They say, you need to wear a scarf. I'm five years old. Why do I have to wear a scarf? They just, their rules doesn't make any sense. In, especially, even if you say a religion had said something. Like, what, 1,400 years ago? Or it comes to Christianity, 2,200 years ago, comes to Judaism, to Christ. You have to, you don't read the same constitution in this country, the same today that you read it 100 years ago. In the constitution in America says, all men are created equal. You know, at the time, they meant rich white men. Rich white men could vote. Then it became all men, not the black ones, all men. Okay. Then it became only men. Half a population in this country, any country, is women. Half a women, they have to go tell their husband, honey, please you vote for this one. Because they can't vote themselves. I may not want to vote, but it's my right. 
is the same thing I say when it comes to pro-life, pro-choice. I am for life, but you can't be pro-life, go kill the doctor, then you are not pro-life. Pro-life is also common sense. Everything has to be common sense. If I want to teach my daughter morality or my sons, I should teach her about modesty, modesty, purity of the body, mind, and spirit. It's not only body. Why are you so obsessed with body? A naked body. I'm an artist. <laughs> I've seen lots of naked bodies. It doesn't bother me. Naked body can be beautiful, can be sacred, can be beautiful. It's not about that. It's about how you project it. It's about that. It's about your thoughts, it, your mind, your spirit, your heart. Function, you can think from your brain, but function from the heart then automatically the environment changes. The mind is important, but mind, as in Baha'i faith, we talk about it. Science without morality is, is no good. Morality needs also like common sense, reasoning has to come together, has to come together. Equality doesn't mean I have to act like a man. I can be me. I can be proud to be a woman. And I am proud to be a woman, but I'm not less than anybody. And I'm not more than, I'm me. And I have just as much rights. If I choose to be a truck driver, it's my right, not the government's right or another group of people's right. I decide. There are lots of professions I have no interest in. It's my choice. My choice. My option. 